Hi, writers. Welcome to a new episode on the craft of writing fiction. I'm glad you're here for it. This is Jim Thayer. Enough banter. Let's get to work. And I hope have some fun. I'd like to talk about the top 11 techniques for strong and clear sentences. Top 11. I hope to get it down to 10, but couldn't. Edward Abbey, the novelist and essayist, said, What is the essence of the art of writing? Part 1. Have something to say. Part 2. Say it well. That's our topic today. Part 2. Say it well. And George Orwell said, Good writing is like a window pane. That's my theory of sentence-by-sentence writing, and it may be yours, too. We want our sentences to be a window to the story. We want the reader to see the story, not the words. Clear, clean, forceful prose does that. Overly artful and complicated prose does not. Uh, Clear, clean, and forceful sentences, which is our goal, is an art. Techniques are involved, and I'd like to talk about them today. Here's a list of techniques that'll make our sentences clear and forceful. And here's a formula for a good sentence. A subject, a strong verb, few modifiers, and short. I want to mention, though, that good sentences shouldn't be like something that uniformly comes out of our mental machine like a a metal stamping press. If we incorporate all the techniques I'm going to mention into every sentence, sentence after sentence, there'll be a dull sameness to the prose. our, Our formula is subject, strong verb, few modifiers, and keep it short. And that's a good formula, and I'm going to touch on all aspects of it. But if every sentence we write used that formula, our writing would be like a metronome. It would be mechanical and predictable and dull. Most of the time, this formula is good, but not all the time, not in every situation. So it's okay to mix it up. Here's the first technique, using active rather than passive sentences. The active voice is where the subject performs the action expressed in the verb. The subject acts. The passive voice is where the subject receives the action expressed in the verb. The subject is acted upon. Here's a passive sentence. The race was run by Dan. The active version of the sentence is, Dan ran the race. Here's a passive sentence. The shop was managed by Mr. Smith. The active version is Mr. Smith managed the shop. Here's a passive sentence. The boy was bitten by the dog. An active version is the dog bit the boy. Not all sentences should be active, but usually the active sentence is more immediate and forceful. Here's a couple more. The passive version, the shot was made by the shortest player on the court. The active version is, the shortest player on the court made the shot. Here's a passive version. The prescription for methadone was written by Dr. Randolph. 
The active version is Dr. Randolph wrote the prescription for methadone. Here's one more. The multiplication table was learned at age three by Einstein. That's a passive sentence. The active version was, at age three, Einstein learned the multiplication table. Not all our sentences need to be active, but most should be. Once in a while, we should toss in a passive sentence to mix things up. A second technique. We should try to avoid words that are too flowery and uncommon. Some words are just too much. These words, which, which are often verbs, uh, sound like kitchen pots banging together. They suggest the writer wanted to be too writerly, uh, to do some literary strutting, and so reached for the thesaurus. Robbed, laughed, just wouldn't do, so Rob ends up cackling, sniggering, guffawing, chortling, or tittering. How do we know when a word is too much? If the word calls attention to itself, rather than the action or object it's intended to convey, it's probably the wrong word. Uh, we like action in our stories, and running is almost always a, a good visual action. Running is the word we likely should use, not darting, bounding, springing, or, or scampering. These words reach too far, and they bring the reader out of the story. The easiest thing for a reader to do is put aside the novel. Most of the time, we should use words that the reader doesn't have to think about. Big, unusual, flowery words get in the way of the story. A third technique is to avoid words that are inflated. This is related to using words that are flowery or uncommon. We should try to avoid inflated words, words that are too big. Uh, for example, instead of utilize, we should use the word use. Uh, facilitate, maybe help is better. The phrase subsequent to isn't as clear as the word after. The phrase cognizant of is an inflated word. It means to be aware of or knows. Jack Kerouac said, one day I will find the right words and they will be simple. I sure believe in that. It's a good thought for us writers. Here's a fourth technique. Avoid cliches. When we use a cliche, we are telegraphing our readers that we don't have a new or interesting idea, uh, and cliches can make our writing stale. I have to watch closely in my own writing because phrases such as, as luck would have it, and black as night, can readily slip in. I'll be writing along and hardly thinking about it, and up pops a cliche. Maybe you do that too. Dead as a doornail. Think outside the box. A loose cannon. A can of worms. A perfect storm. A tough row to hoe. Add insult to injury. It's all fun and games. Back to square one. 
hundreds of cliches exist, and it's, it's surprisingly difficult to avoid them, such as the cliché, a broken heart. But we should try to avoid them. We should try to come up with something original and fresh. That's a nice part of our job as writers, and it's rewarding. Bringing something new into the world, a new phrase, a new way of looking at things. Instead of a broken heart, she took my love and squeezed it through a 1943 Maytag clothes ringer, then put it out in the hot sun to turn to a crisp. (laughs) Maybe not. But we should try to avoid cliches anyway. Number five, keep modifiers to a minimum. As you know, a modifier is a word or phrase that limits or qualifies the sense of another word or phrase. Usually they're adverbs and adjectives. The big dog haltingly walked to the house. Big is an adjective. Haltingly is an adverb. Uh, We learned in high school that modifiers describe things or actions. Uh, They can can enliven a sentence, compare she jumped rope on the sidewalk with she jubilantly jumped rope on the sidewalk. The modifier, the adverb jubilantly, has has poured energy and joy into the sentence. It's, It's telling rather than showing, but once in a while, that's just fine. A single word can produce markedly different results. She warily ate the food. She disgustedly ate the food. She ravenously ate the food. But here's one of the main ways we can make our writing more vivid, and that's by using modifiers sparingly. Stephen King says, adverbs are not your friend. Uh, His advice could also be applied to adjectives. I asked Google's artificial intelligence site, BARD, to generate a sentence with too many modifiers, and it nicely obliged. Listen to this. The The young, handsome, and dashing prince strode confidently and purposefully across the room, his blue eyes twinkling mischievously as he smiled charmingly at the beautiful princess. This sentence has a total of ten adverbs and adjectives. Young, handsome, dashing, confidently, purposely, blue, twinkling, mischievously, charmingly, and beautiful. It sinks under the weight of the adjectives. The runaway use of modifiers is a mark of an unskilled writer. And a funny thing about adjectives and adverbs, they often weaken rather than than strengthen a sentence. Sometimes they're necessary, of course, but we should try to avoid them when we can. Here's a, a sixth technique. We should use strong verbs. And this is related to reducing modifiers that I just mentioned. Often an adverb is used to pump up a weak verb. Instead, we should try to find a stronger verb. Here's here's a weak sentence. She ran quickly to the finish line. Here's a stronger sentence. She sprinted to the finish line. Sprinted is a strong verb. Uh, Here's a weak sentence. He hit the nail into the wood. 
Uh, hits fine. But how about this? He hammered the nail into the wood. Hammered is a stronger verb. Uh, here's a, a weak sentence. He tried to persuade her. A stronger sentence. He argued with her. Tried to persuade, persuade is a weak phrase. Argued is a strong verb. Uh, here's a weak sentence. The wind blew strongly through the trees. How do you make that better? The wind howled through the trees. The technique here is simple. Use a strong word, a strong verb. Uh, number seven, deleting there. The word there, <clears throat> T-H-E-R-E. The word there is a, a noun indicating a, a place or position. Often the word weakens an observation by adding an unneeded level to the sentence. Here's the word there. There were three palominos behind the fence. And here is a better version of the sentence without that added layer. Three palominos were behind the fence. See the layer that the word there puts into the sentence? Here's another one. There was a ship steaming toward the pier. Without that layer of the word there, the sentence is, a ship steamed toward the pier. A much stronger sentence. Eliminating the word there makes the observations more immediate by removing a level between the reader and the object being observed. It's a good technique. Number eight, avoiding qualifiers and intensifiers. I've mentioned this earlier in an earlier episode. E.B. White called qualifiers and intensifiers, quote, the leeches that infest the pond of prose, sucking the blood of words. He was talking about needless qualifiers. Here are some of them. Rather, somewhat, generally, virtually, pretty, as in pretty much, slightly, a bit, little, sort of, kind of, almost. Here are a couple of sentences weakened by qualifiers. I was rather tired. She was slightly stooped. He was a bit timid. I was a little embarrassed. He was a bit hesitant. He was sort of hungry. Here are a couple of intensifiers. Very, really, truly, completely. Uh, an example is, I was really tired. I was completely exhausted. Uh, instead of using a weak verb modified by an intensifier, I was really tired, we should find a stronger verb. I was exhausted. He was very funny. He was really funny. He was truly funny. Uh, we can do a global search of our manuscript for these words and get rid of them. And our manuscript will be strengthened, usually without changing the sentence's meaning, except to make it stronger. Number nine, uh, avoiding was and were as verbs. When we can, we should use the active form of a verb rather than a verb watered down with was or were. He stood in the door is stronger than he was standing in the door. 
we should challenge the use of was and were as our main verbs in our sentences because they're weaker than the verb used alone. She ran is stronger than she was running. Sometimes, though, the use of was and were are the most accurate verb forms, and we can't eliminate all of the, all of the uses, uh, but we should try, we should always challenge them, see if we can find a stronger verb. Uh, this is one of those techniques I have to be careful about in my own writing. It's easy, I've found, to, to get into the was and were habit. And sometimes I find a lot of them in my own writing that need to be given a, a more active form. Here's number 10. Avoid summary words. Uh, summary words offer the writer's opinion of something rather than offering evidence to the reader that would allow the reader to form the opinion. A description is more engaging if the reader is allowed to make his or her own conclusion from the evidence. C.S. Lewis said, Don't use adjectives which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the thing you are describing. I mean, instead of telling us a thing was terrible, describe it so that we'll be terrified. So an example of this, characters should almost never be described as handsome or gorgeous or beautiful or ugly or other words that summarize the quality of their features. Uh, these words are summaries rather than descriptions. A reader can't draw a mental picture from the word gorgeous. Uh, physical descriptions should be specific and vivid and offer the reader a a picture, green eyes, a sunken face, a swollen face, a bump in her nose, greased back hair, small ears tightly against his head, silk fine hair. She was so slender she threw almost no shadow. These aren't summaries. They're a description. We should try to avoid summaries. Number 11 and the last one, we should try to keep our sentences on the short side. Not all the time, of course, but short sentences give energy to descriptions. James Joyce, William Faulkner, and Virginia Woolf are famous for their long sentences, and, and who has the courage to second-guess them? Ernest Hemingway, Cormac McCarthy are famous for their short sentences. Beatrix Potter, who created Peter Rabbit, said, quote, The shorter and the plainer, the better. And one of my favorite people in history, Samuel Johnson, the great lexicographer and literary critic, said, quote, A man who uses a great many words to express his meaning is like a bad marksman, who instead of aiming a single stone at an object, takes up a handful and throws it, throws at it in hopes he may hit. Maybe the rule as to commas apply to words, to keep our sentences on the short side. When in doubt, cut it out. I don't mean all sentences should be short, but generally, I think we should aim for shorter sentences. They're easy to understand, and they convey energy. So these are some techniques for sentence-by-sentence -sentence writing. Most of the time, 
I think these techniques will make our sentences clearer and stronger. But sometimes we should mix it up. Use the passive voice once in a while. Use a powerful modifier once in a while. Use an odd word once in a while. But the formula, subject, strong verb, few modifiers, and short sentences, is a terrific formula. My new novel, Fagan and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. I drink several cups of green tea in the morning. Every day, several strands of my cat Jack's fur end up floating on the tea. I used to take the time to fish them out. No longer. Life's too short to dip my fingers into hot tea and fish around for strands of cat fur. Cat fur likely doesn't present health hazards. Uh, These strands of fur likely go through me like grain through a goose. Let me ask once more, who let the first cat into the house? I'd like to talk about a concept called the story arc. It's a common term in fiction writing, the story arc. It can also be called a narrative arc or a dramatic arc. It's really just a term for the plot. The story arc is a diagram showing plot points chronologically. The story arc is not a concept that I've used in my thinking about writing, but it's a term that's out there, and I'd like to talk about it for a minute. A story arc is the chronological construction of plot, where plot points are represented on an arc, a curved line. An arc is a curved line. Story arcs in fiction rise and then they fall. First the action of the story rises and then it falls. That's the arc. The arc begins on the left with the beginning. The hero and her problem are introduced, conflict develops, Settings are described. Then, following the form of an arc, there's rising action. Conflict escalates. Problem seems intractable. The stakes become higher. Then the climax. This is where the conflict is resolved, where the reader sees that the hero has overcome the obstacles and has won. This is the top of the arc. And then there's falling action. This is the part of the arc that should be much steeper than the rising part. Here's where the reader sees things settle out after the climax and 
But after the climax, readers quickly lose interest in the story. So this part of the story, the, the falling arc, should be short. It's often called the walk away. It should be really short. I don't find the concept of the story arc to be useful. Uh, maybe it's I, because I don't fully understand it. Introduction, rising action, climax, falling action. It seems easy enough and not too helpful. I hope today finds you where you have managed all distractions and can sit down with your computer and put words onto the screen. The novelist and poet Christopher Morley said, when you sell a man a book, you don't sell him 12 ounces of paper and ink and glue. You sell him a whole new life. That's what I hope you're doing, creating a new life for your readers. J.K. Rowling did it. Charles Dickens did it. Jody Picoult and Bernard Cornwell and Maeve Binchy did it. I'll bet you're doing it too. My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please create that new world and keep tapping those keys. 